Um, today's reading is from 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 16. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his honor, armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, saying this displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul as he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had not departed from Saul, or but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, excuse me. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when the Lord saw that, when Saul saw that he had great success, but he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks, Sammy. Well, good morning, everybody. If we have not met yet, my name is Scott, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, along with. Uh, Derek and Todd and, and several others who have not been up front uh, today. And uh, it's my privilege to continue our summer series this morning that we're calling The Battle Within. We're actually going through various uh, sort of internal challenges, internal struggles and turmoils and tornadoes that we experience that others often don't see. And we're talking about how God uh, can and, and wishes to redeem uh, and restore us uh, when we experience those times. And so today we're talking about uh, comparison, which uh, is something that uh, Theodore Roosevelt called the thief of joy. And uh, what I'll do is I'll start with this. I'll start with a verse that's really in the Bible. It's really there. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, all the way back to the beginning. The Lord saw, God saw, how great man's wickedness had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So, if you are trying to win friends and influence people, this is probably not the first verse in the Bible that you're going to pull out to, to put in front of people. However, however harsh it may sound, honest people know that it's true. At least honest people know that it's true about themselves. You know, Jesus talked about this uh, sort of nature of the human heart. 
in the darkness of the human heart, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he, instead of lowering the bar on the law of God, actually raised the bar. He said, you don't have to get in bed with the wrong person to commit adultery. All you have to do is have lustful fantasies about doing so, and you have committed adultery in your heart. You don't have to literally murder somebody. You don't have to actually take somebody's life in order to be a murderer. All you have to do is hate them in your heart, uh, wish bad things upon them, gossip about them, slander them, assassinate their character, and you are a murderer. Just because you've prayed does not mean that God is pleased with the prayer because many people, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, pray in order to be seen. They pray as showboats rather than as worshipers. And the same could be said about giving generously to the poor, giving generously to the kingdom. The gifts are not to be given in order to receive applause and praise from people. Gifts are to be given in secret between you and your Father in heaven. So Jesus gets at the motives. He gets at the inclinations of the thoughts of our hearts. And there's another internal evil that Scripture talks about that Saul exemplifies, King Saul, King of Israel, as exhibit A. And that evil is what you could call the rival spirit or the tendency that's in all of us to compare and compete. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in Mere Christianity when he talked about pride. He said pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. He goes on and says, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. It's the pleasure of being above all the rest. We can even use our prayers to elevate ourselves over others and and diminish others in in our eyes and, and in the eyes of others. This happens in Luke chapter 18 where a religious Pharisee prays, and and if you go back to the original Greek language, it says that he prays to himself, interestingly. There's a whole psychological thing going on. He's praying to himself. He's giving him a pep talk in something disguised as a prayer, but it's not really a prayer as much as it is comparing and competing. Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus says this man man went home condemned. With all of his behaviors, with all of his religiosity, he went home condemned because there was no humility in his heart. There there are a couple of of, of major drawbacks to comparing and competing. One is that it kills community, destroys community, because when our hearts are in the place of comparing and competing, we don't have the capacity for empathy or compassion any more than we have the capacity to celebrate the successes and joys that other people are experiencing. We have no capacity to rejoice with those who rejoice or to mourn with those who mourn. Instead, that gets flipped, and, 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 and when we are comparing and competing, We end up rejoicing when others are mourning and and mourning when others are rejoicing. And so the whole reality of love gets reversed. But it doesn't just kill community. It also erodes the soul to uh, Roosevelt's point when he says comparison is the thief of joy. So what I want to do this morning is offer two points, sparing you the third. 
But I'm really going to give a th- third point because I'm going to weave it into the second. But, but uh, I'm just playing a trick on you. But basically what we've got here in this account is, is the post-Goliath uh, episode. Okay, so famous story in the Bible, young David, shepherd boy, slays Goliath the Philistine who's threatening the armies of Israel. And, and as uh, he does so, he, he, he rescues Israel from the Philistine armies, representatively slaying the enemy. Okay, so David's star is rising, so to speak, as, as a warrior because he's uh, slain a threatening enemy. And so what we've got in front of us is the story of two different men. One is a king, one is a prince. One is Saul, one is Jonathan. And, and, and I want to talk about both of them as they see themselves in relation to David. So let's start, let's start with Saul, who we could call a portrait of jealousy. And so the Saul response to David slaying Goliath is a bit of a warning sign for us. He gives us some things to be on guard about in ourselves when somebody else in our vicinity is succeeding, when somebody else's star is rising. See, because Lewis, when when Lewis says that pride is the pleasure of being above the rest, um, you know, he's talking about superiority-oriented pride. Uh, But what we have here is inferiority-oriented pride. See, superiority pride is the pleasure of being above the rest. Inferiority pride is the misery of being beneath anyone. And that's what what Saul is experiencing right now. It says in verse 5 that wherever Saul the king sent young David, David was successful. And whatever David did pleased all the people. Uh, It says in verse 7 that the women, after the Goliath event, celebrated after David defeated Goliath. And, and, And they started by singing a song about Saul. They, 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 they wrote, uh, produced, and released a record. And the lyric went like this, Saul, our king, has slain thousands. And this was literally true. Saul had been a warrior. He'd been a champion in battle, and he'd put his own neck on the line in order to uh, protect the people that he led uh, over the course of, of his you know, reign as Saul. In fact, it was his being a warrior that got him to be king in the first place. So it is a literally true uh, refrain. Saul has slain his thousands. And of course, he's feeling really good about this when he hears these words. Uh, one man toppling a thousand enemies, a hero in our eyes. And, 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 and so it's, it's the highest praise. But all you have to do is add one refrain to that highest praise of Saul, and and immediately that high praise is interpreted by Saul as an insult. Because the next refrain is, David has slain tens of thousands. This is actually a hyperbolic statement, because David had actually only slain one person, as far as we can tell, and that's Goliath. And then he you know, slew a, a wild beast in the wilderness uh, sometime ago, and God protected him. But that was another story. So Saul has literally slain a thousand, a thousands, and David has figuratively slain tens of thousands. It still sheds the literal nature of it, sheds Saul in the positive light, but it says that because of this refrain about David, it made Saul very angry. And from that point forward, he keeps a jealous eye on David. As the country music songwriter Gary Allen wrote, you can be the moon 
and still be jealous of the stars. And that's what's going on here, except what you've got is a star jealous of the moon because Saul is, he's king. He's king. And yet he is consumed with envy because of the attention that David is getting. Saul is a narcissist. And a narcissist is a self-absorbed person. That's what Saul is, self-absorbed. Zero capacity to rejoice with those who rejoice to celebrate the victory that David has achieved on behalf of, of, of uh, Israel, or even more than that, to celebrate the strength that God had given this little boy to do such an amazing thing and an impossible thing. No capacity to celebrate. So, a refreshing opposite to King Saul was the missionary Amy Carmichael. Some of you may have read uh, biographies uh, from her or some of her writings. She wrote poetry. She, she wrote prose. Uh, she wrote memoir and such because she was bedridden for, for many years of her life uh, due to a deep illness. Um, you know, she lived a quiet and faithful, other-oriented life. And so, after Amy Carmichael died, a loved one, uh, you know, went in to sort of clean out and organize her belongings, which were modest and few, but, but, but this loved one came across Amy Carmichael's collection of photographs and noticed that there was not a single picture of Amy Carmichael herself in her own photograph collection. Zero selfies. Every picture that she had was either of somebody that she loved or of some experience or occasion that brought glory to God. You know, she had the kind of humility that you, Lewis described as, you know, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Where, 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 where Saul is, is completely consumed with, with, with self-conscious self-absorption, Amy Carmichael is so absorbed in the love of God and the love of, of her neighbor that she doesn't even think to take a single picture of herself, or at least not to hold on to one. But the narcissist is the opposite of that. The narcissist has only selfies in the picture collection, or, or mostly selfies. The narcissist wants to be the star of his or her own story and, and, and expects everybody else to be supporting actors in that story. You know, the whole psychology of a narcissist selfie is to have people on my arm who are reputable, who are eye candy, so that other people out there can see who I am with in order to increase my social rank and make me look good. It's, all, it's, a, it's completely an image thing. And a narcissist is actually very content with having fans instead of friends. Because a narcissist really is more attracted to celebrity than, than, than to intimacy. And that's the whole psychology and spirituality behind the selfie movement. You may have read, uh, you may have read something in the past year about uh, Asena O'Neill, who's an Australian uh, young woman. She is now 19 years old, but, but uh, you know, news about her broke uh, sort of globally um, when she was 18. So this was, I don't know, six to eight months ago. Um, you know, she posted a YouTube video basically saying that she was renouncing social media. And that was a big deal because by that time, over the course of two years between the ages of 16 and 18, 
Asena O'Neill had accumulated 570,000 followers on Instagram, a quarter of a million subscribers on YouTube, and every, every Snapchat uh, post that, that she would put out there, she would get an average of about 60,000 views, which, you know, in, in social media terms, that makes you a celebrity. It makes you hashtag insta-famous, as they say. And, and this, this fame, this, this online celebrity that, 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 that she had gained from, from, from posting artful and sometimes provocative pictures of herself got her a fame that made her independently able to support herself at the age of, of 16 and 17 financially. And she was getting invitations from cities like Los Angeles and New York to come uh, for a modeling career. And what does she do two years into it? She deletes the apps from her phone because, as she says, I became addicted to being liked. And she said, as an 18-year-old, I I can look back on my 16-year-old self and I can know that my 16-year-old self would say to me now, you have the dream life, girl. But the truth is I'm lost, lonely, and miserable. And then she went on to say this, one of the most empowering And freeing things I've ever done is delete the social media apps from my phone. I cannot tell you how free I feel without social media. It suffocated me. I would spend, here's the compare and compete thing. I would spend hours looking at everyone else's perfect lives. Now, remember, this was the star envying the moon, the greater light, so to speak, with with her millions of followers, million followers, give or take. The star envying the smaller lights, which became the driving motive to gain more likes and follows. I would spend hours looking at everyone else's perfect lives, and I strived to make mine look just as good. Guess I succeeded. It's totally stupid. She's not saying social media is stupid. She's saying the... the obsession with your own image, putting yourself in every single one of your pictures, as it were, is totally stupid because it kills community and it erodes the soul. So we were in New York City when, um, when the market crashed in 2008 and, and you know, I literally got to see the effects of, 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 of the Lehman Brothers crash where that very day when, when, when Lehman Brothers fell to the ground, you know, figuratively speaking. And one, of their top, uh, one of their top staffers came into my office and said, my, my net worth today just went from millions to nothing. And I can remember as, as, you know, we all, you know, the ripple effect, you know, hit, hit the whole world. It wasn't just New York, but it was acutely felt there in New York. And it was also acutely felt in London, you know, two of the financial capitals of the world, right? And Never forget the, the, the story I read in the New York Times about a billionaire in London, multi-multi-billionaire actually, who lost half of his net worth in the crash. And you know what a multi-multi-billionaire is after losing half of his worth? He is a multi-multi-billionaire. And yet, even though none of the quality of his life was affected, he committed suicide. And those who, 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 who speculated as to why a still multi-multi-billionaire would commit suicide. They, they speculated the reason why was that his rank 
in the financial world went down. Comparing and competing kills community, erodes the soul. One of the privileges I get um, being a pastor in Nashville is six nights a year, I get to be backstage at the Ryman and be the chaplain to to whatever collection of artists is is sharing their art that evening. Many of those artists are um, names that you would recognize. And one of the things that this experience has taught me, and those of you who are in music, you, you know this, there, there's a difference between what you see from the seats and what you see backstage. And when, when you're backstage, you, you, you learn that, yes, it's true, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. You know, it's true that, that, that like R.E.M. sang, everybody hurts, or, or like, you know, Bob Dylan sang, everything and everyone is broken, so there was this one conversation I had early on, this was a couple of years ago, with, with a woman that you would recognize and whose music you would recognize. And I, you know, I had a few moments with her backstage and I said, you know, can you just tell me for a moment, I, by the way, I love your work, can, can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be you? I, I would just enjoy hearing what it's like to be you, especially in, I mean, this is the Ryman after all. And, and, and you know, she says, you know what, I, I'm in the Ryman tonight. It's wonderful. I, I, I do concerts regularly, fill stadiums, fill arenas. And uh, here's, can I be honest with you? What was your name again? And I said, my name is Scott. You know, and she says, well, here's what it's like to be me. In just a few moments, all eyes are going to be on me. And all ears are going to be attentive to me. And I'm going to be the loneliest person in the room. That's what it's like to be me. The human soul is not made for celebrity. We're made for friends, not fans. We're made for intimacy, not image. What is true for these dear souls was also true for King Saul, who was the king who had slain his thousands, and yet no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of praise, no amount of likes and followers and fans was going to do for his soul what he was demanding they do for his soul. And as a result, he became the worst version of himself. Kills community. It says that he becomes aggressive, so aggressive that he wants to pin David to the wall. He keeps a jealous eye on David from that point forward. And in the process, he loses David's trust. He doesn't lose David's loyalty but he loses David's trust, and he loses the trust of his own son, Jonathan, in the process. And, and it also erodes his soul. Did you, hear, did you hear what was read to us? A harmful spirit from God? What in the world could that mean? Here's what it means. It means that the law of God by itself, because it is the law of nature, the law of God bites back when we run the other way and, and, and seek to live our lives by some other law. And the law that Saul was living by is get the approval and applause of the people and be number one and your soul will be okay. Your soul will be at rest. But, but, but the law of God was, you know, put everything, put, 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 put all of it into Jesus, put all of it into the smile and approval and applause and the song and the lyric that God sings over you, your maker sings, sings over you, and then you will experience the filling that the applause of the crowds will, will, will only give you, you know, something similar to saccharin, artificial sweetener, 
You know, this isn't just a psychological thing. It's a deeply theological thing because what, 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 what Saul is doing is he is leaning on something finite to fill an infinite space. The human soul is created in the image of God, which means that it is limitless. It is infinite in its capacity to contain. But the only thing, here's the trick, the only thing in, in all the world that, 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 that can fill the human soul to the capacity of our desires and longings is God Himself. As St. Augustine prayed, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Or, or Pascal, the brilliant philosopher and math mathematician who never hung his hat on his, on his genius, but who said instead that, 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 that inside the soul of every human being is a God-shaped vacuum. And, 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 and not until God and God alone fills that vacuum will any human being ever be satisfied. It's like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with a teaspoon of dirt or, or, or to quench your thirst with salt water. It will just make you dissatisfied and more thirsty, not less. So that's the portrait of jealousy, the portrait of narcissism. But here we have in Jonathan the portrait of freedom. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the prince. He is the heir apparent to the throne. That's how it worked in those days. The firstborn of the king was the next in line unless God intervened. And God had intervened. And He'd appointed the prophet Samuel to, to make it known that it would be David, not Jonathan, who would be Saul's successor eventually. But nonetheless, and in the face of this, in the face of losing the throne, it says that the soul of Jonathan was not embittered by David, but was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. Whereas Saul desired to consume David, Jonathan, it says in verse 2, entered into a covenant with David. A covenant is an other orientation. It is my life for your flourishing rather than your life for my flourishing. It's as if Jonathan had a thousand pictures of David in his collection and zero pictures of himself. His joy is tethered to David's flourishing precisely because David's flourishing has been declared as the sovereign will of God. And that's how David and Jonathan were on the same page. It wasn't about David and Jonathan. You know, aim at Jesus and you get friendship thrown in. That's what happened. They were about the same thing. They were about the glory and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what caused them to have such a deep love that was so deep that it says in the Scripture that their love for one another was stronger than the love between a man and a woman even. You know, whereas Saul is jealous of David, Jonathan is jealous of for David, and, and, and in being jealous for David instead of being jealous of David, he is emotionally free not to think less of himself, but to think of himself less. Blessed self-forgetfulness, you could call it. And this is actually staggering because if anyone in this picture should see David as a threat, it's Jonathan. 
Because what would happen in those days is if one family you know, assumed the throne from another family, the, the, the first order of business for the new king was to execute every last descendant, men, women, and children, of the predecessor. And so what does Jonathan do? He, he, he strips himself naked and puts his royal robe on David. It's symbolic. It's to say, you're the man, not me. You're, you're the future king and reigning king, not me. I accede my throne. I accede my robe to cover you and become naked and vulnerable myself in the process. But the other thing that he gives to David is his sword. Remember what I just told you? What, what would David, according to the culture, do to Jonathan with that sword? He would use the sword against him. Of course, David did not do that. But what Jonathan is doing is he's making himself completely vulnerable to David. You know, his response, Jonathan's, to the Goliath event is essentially to say, I see God's hand on you, and I am ready to lay down my life to join what God is doing in your life and through you. You, David, it has been declared, must increase, which means I must become less. I must decrease. Did you, uh, did you read USA Today's piece about um, Muhammad Ali uh, last week or two? It was a, sort of a eulogy. It was a very honoring eulogy, but also very honest eulogy of Muhammad Ali. And, and uh, it, it referred to an interview that they did with his wife, who was his wife for 40 years, and, and his wife uh, talked about a time when her sister sort of, you know, got transparent with Muhammad Ali and said, I'm, I'm feeling very low spiritually. I'm feeling spiritually down. Do you, Muhammad, ever feel spiritually down? And his answer was no. And, and, and his wife's sister said, why, why is your answer no? Why do you never feel spiritually down? And his answer was this, because I'm the most famous man on earth. And what could be better than that? You know, articles, you know, would also say that later on, and, you know, in his later years after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's from all the blows to his head in the boxing ring, and, 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 and after coming to terms with his mortality, Ali became much, much softer, much more generous of spirit, no more referring to himself as the greatest of all time who floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. You know, instead, he was a mortal, soft, gentle, humble man into his latter days, according to those who were close to him. So here's what happened to Jonathan. Jonathan had held fast to what his father had forgotten, and it is this, that all men, including kings, are like the grass and the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. And, and, and furthermore, as it says in the 103rd Psalm, written by David, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So what we have here is Saul clinging tightly to the status of king. And the more he clings to the status of king, the less a king he becomes. And, and, and here we have, on the other hand, Jonathan surrendering the status of king. And, and as he surrenders the status of king, the more like a king he becomes. The more he makes himself small, the more glorious 
he becomes. The fewer fans he seeks, the more friends and deeper friendships he has. How do we become free? How do we become free so that our photos become dominated not by pictures of ourselves, but but by pictures of others and, and by pictures of things that God is doing in the world? How do we become so free that we, we live our lives in such a way that it's no longer about us? You know, how do we become so free that we can be the moon and not envy the stars? Or that we can be the star and not envy the moon when the moon's star starts to rise? What would it be like to be so free that we, we, we start giving our lives in exchange for others flourishing? that we become kings and queens precisely by, by virtue of the fact that we have stopped acting like kings and queens and have begun to take the greatest place in the kingdom of a servant instead. Here's how. We have to look to the prince beyond the prince and to the king beyond the king to be our emotional wealth and resource. Jesus is the true Jonathan. He is literally, the, the Scriptures say, the prince, the prince of peace. Who was in very nature a king, who was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and became obedient even to death on a cross, who took off his robe and, 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 and made himself naked and put the robe of his righteousness and royalty on us for covering so that we would become daughters and sons of the Most High God. He handed us his sword and we used it against him. And it's in the very using of his sword against him that he demonstrates his true kingliness in not being jealous of us so much so that he would strike back and retaliate and pin us to the wall, but because he was jealous for us, for us, his joy became tethered in our flourishing. He's the true prince of peace. He's also the true king. He's the one who slayed Goliath. And who is Goliath really? Goliath is the Saul that resides in each and every one of us. That compares and competes, that seeks fans over friends. That interprets everybody else's situation and circumstance as a reflection for good or for ill on us. Jesus slayed that Goliath. It's called sin, narcissism, self-centeredness, whatever you want to call it, whatever name you want to tape to it. He made us his daughters and sons with his infinite love that alone can fill the vacuum. Only infinite love can fill an infinite soul. And, and, and so really the message, the takeaway in one sentence is this, do not dare, if you know what's good for you, do not dare settle for something so small as self. Will you pray with me?